Trade Talks, bringing you the best of the buy side. Hello and welcome back to episode seven of the Trade Talks podcast. Joining me as always is our editor, Hayley McDowell, and we have a new voice on the podcast, Annabelle Smith, our new writer. So today, as usual, we're going to go through some of our top stories, uh, what we've been looking and covering over the couple of weeks. And then we'll have our interview with James Watson, where we're going to be talking about market data and the cost of market data and the proposal of a new kind of model similar to Spotify and Apple Music. Then we have our end segment, which is People Moves. But uh, first, uh, hello, Haley. Hello, Annabelle. How are you guys? Hey, guys. Yeah, it's good to uh, be back on Trade Talks. It's It's been a little while. We had a bit of a break, didn't we? Um, but yeah, thrilled to be joined today by our new reporter, Annabelle. Annabelle, how are you? Yeah, good. Really happy to be doing my first podcast. Um, yeah, excited. Fantastic. Um, Kais, how was your weekend? Oh, my weekend was very good. We had a bit of sun, uh, so I invested in a blow-up canoe and uh, ended up canoeing 10 miles with my friend. I mean, we, we have no business of being in a boat, but uh, we had, you know, a bag full of uh, cold beers, a Bluetooth speaker and a sunny day. So it was really good. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it, it was amazing, except for one point where we thought we were sinking because... Halfway through, I had a big puddle of water on my bum. Um, <laughs> so we got out, you know, tipped upside down the canoe, checked for holes, but it just turned out to be the ice melting from our beers. So, yeah, it was nice. Uh, and what about you, uh, Annabelle? Because uh, I know you're supposed to be back in the UK, but you're still stuck in Spain, right? Well, yeah, funny you are. So, yeah, I was in Spain for the last couple of weeks and my flight's been cancelled, so I'm working from Spain at the moment. But, you know... Every so often I wander outside and the weather's nice, so it's, it's pretty decent. Yeah, I think you've yeah. looked out there, Annabelle. I think you've really looked out with a nice little uh, longer trip in Spain. What about you, Hayley? Yeah, mine was good. Unfortunately, I'm not um, stuck in Spain or canoeing, um, but yeah, it's been good. Um, I've been enjoying the weather and, and things like that. So yeah, it's not, not too bad. Um, all good. There's been a real heat wave in the UK, hasn't there? It's been like 37 degrees or something in some places. It's been crazy hot, like sort of on average, like 34 degrees, like, and then on the news, you see like 36 degrees in some places. It's, yeah, I think, I think we've got like 30, around 30 degrees all week this week. So yeah, it's, it's crazy hot here at the, at the moment. So is that, is that my cue to drive back to London? I think <laughs> now that you guys have got the hot weather down south. <laughs> Definitely. The Trade Talking Points. Okay, so straight into the news. How about Haley, our editor? How about you start us off with the news? Yeah, sure. So we have had, um, well, it's sort of earnings um, season. Well, we're just coming out of earnings season at the moment, but it meant we've got some crazy news uh, from HSBC. Uh, so you may remember just prior to um, the coronavirus lockdown, HSBC had announced a, a massive cost-cutting um, sort of restructure, which included um, huge job uh, losses. I think it was around 35,000. Um, and then shortly after the lockdown was imposed, HSBC decided to suspend that cost-cutting programme. 
And uh, quite recently, HSBC has now confirmed that it will accelerate that cost reduction program. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's all guns blazing, really, at, at HSBC. Big changes uh, for the global markets and banking division. So just to sort of take you back uh, to earlier this year when, when those um, job cuts and the restructure was announced. Uh, so the global markets and banking division is is very much at the centre of this initiative at, at HSBC. So it's going to see equity sales, uh, trading and research activities in Europe reduced, uh, and its structured products will be transitioned from the UK to Asia, and the fixed income activities in the US uh, will be consolidated with those in London. So some big, big sort of changes at, at HSBC, but um, let's not forget that you know HSBC is not the only massive sort of um, investment bank that is looking to do these kind of changes. Um, you know, we've, we've had um, Deutsche Bank is, is obviously undergoing a massive one. Um, Socgen has, has also announced big restructures. I know there's been changes at City uh, and, and others. Um, so, yeah, this isn't um, anything too sort of different in terms of their, their peers. But, you know, it, it's quite a big um, sort of restructure with with those job losses. I mean, thirty five thousand full time jobs gone. Um, you know, is is crazy. And 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 at the same time, you've obviously because of the um, coronavirus pandemic, which has it, it's hit banks quite hard. I think in in the second quarter this year, um, HSBC said it would speed up its transformation plan at the same time that its profits after tax were down sixty nine percent, which is just insane really um but yeah so that's been a, a huge story at um the trade over the last sort of um week or so so i definitely wanted to take you guys through that one yeah it's interested you uh saying about that because although this cut was like planned before the lockdown they put a yeah. pause on it but what we're seeing now a lot of the banking industry is looking to almost reduce the workforce by 75 percent mm. well more following this lockdown because they're realizing that actually everyone doesn't need to be in the office. So I feel like that's going to be a trend. And although HSBC, you know, had plans for this earlier, I think like you, you were saying, other banks are looking to do similar things. I think, yeah, we're going to start seeing more and more of this. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I think, like you said, around the sort of real estate, uh, you know, it's, it's I, I haven't personally been in, in London since um, the beginning of lockdown. So, you know, I, I, I have no idea what kind of, um, you know, real estate these, these banks will sort of hang on to. Um, you know, I wonder if Canary Wolf will ever look the same again, to be completely <laughs> honest. But um, yeah, like you say, people can work from home now. So, you know, there's there's sort of no need to, to have these massive buildings. But, you know, it's whether the banks will, will decide to sort of, you know, reduce that um, their real estate in, in terms of that. That'd be very interesting to to see, but um, but yeah, nothing nothing sort of new happening at HSBC. This was this was something that they'd announced in uh, February, I believe it was. So so yeah, um, I'll, I'll move on because I'm conscious of time. So just one more really interesting story from me. Um, so I recently got my hands on a client report from JP Morgan's credit trading desk. And interestingly, um, a trend that we've, I believe we've discussed before in the podcast, um, JP Morgan has seen um, portfolio trading volumes jump um, massively um, since the coronavirus pandemic and the market volatility which has ensued. So for those of you that are unaware, portfolio trading, um, it allows traders to basically package um, bonds into a single basket for execution in a single transaction. Uh, so it's not actually a new term, but um, it's become increasingly popular um, with traders. It's a, a sort of 
a very efficient way to manage very complex um, and multifaceted um, bond transactions. So JP Morgan actually referenced a, a, a feature that I'd written on, on portfolio, portfolio trading in that, in that client report, um, which was great to see. Um, but just to let you know the stats, so JP Morgan has actually executed 77% of the total portfolio trading volumes it executed last year so far this year. So we're already at 77% of the total volumes from last year. So basically, JP Morgan is saying that it's becoming increasingly popular, that portfolio trading is really gathering momentum. And um, yeah, you know, I think it was just uh, some interesting stuff in there. So um, I'll just sort of read off one of the the comments here. Um, Portfolio trading offers a route to cost saving while also creating bespoke portfolios that cater to a fund's unique trading needs. So, you know, JP Morgan is definitely behind this sort of um, trading protocol. And you may remember that sort of earlier on this year, um, sort of right at the height of the coronavirus volatility, um, TradeWeb, the the fixed income trading platform provider, also said that it saw, um, you know, clients increasingly engaging with portfolio trading to to move large amounts of risk, um, and particularly in those volatile market conditions. So um, TradeWeb said the daily line items it execute via portfolio trading increased more than 100% in March compared to the first two months of the year. So, um, so yeah, thought that was quite interesting uh, from from me. I want to talk now about a story which I've been writing today, actually. Uh, it's about uh, Viela's uh, super feed. And we actually wrote about this in the past as well. But I'll just give you a rundown of the story. So... IPC Systems and Vela, they've uh, expanded their partnership. So they've signed a new agreement to expand that partnership. And through this, uh, IPC will basically have access to the super feed from Vela. Uh, now, this is a low latency market data feed, and it's now accessible to all IPC clients who use the Connexious Cloud. Vela claims that the SuperVeed provides coverage of 150 markets and data sources, including major North American and European exchanges. And it's increasing a number of Asian Pacific venues as well, which it's offering. So the firm it stated that it will continue to invest in the Superfeed because they basically want to expand uh, the coverage range and also the different data types available. So they want to include end of day data and the historical data solutions. Now, from this partnership, it will allow 6,600 global market participants to access the Superfeed. And earlier this month, uh, Vela deployed its uh, normalized market data feed, which is the super feed within the Amazon Web Service cloud environment. Vela said this move means clients will have access to its super feed market data through Amazon Web Services private link, which will enable customers' networks to securely access the Amazon Web Service deployed trading data instantly and reliably. So, uh, yeah, it seems like they are going ahead with their expansion. Uh, that Amazon Web Service deal was only in August as well, so it's quite recent, only a couple of days after uh, that this story is happening. And kind of another um, interesting use case there of, of cloud technology again. I know that we've discussed it before on the podcast about cloud technology. This is the year, I feel. 2020 is the year that people are taking all these technologies seriously because, again, like with the HSBC story, um, everyone is moving well, they're thinking to cut this cost of retail, they don't need to pay for offices when they're, you know, they're not there. So they realize, why don't we use this money to invest in the kind of tech which can actually help us with this working home environment? And again, yeah, the cloud service, a great one. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, definitely in that kind of same direction, which we've been covering a lot on this podcast. I feel like this podcast is going to become soon the, the trade work from home podcast. <laughs> but anyway, I'll move on to my second story now. Uh, 
It's about shorter market hours. And again, we spoke about this, I believe, was in episode five of the podcast. Uh, now, shorter market hours, it became this real big talking point at the start of lockdown. Many for shorter market hours and many not. Uh, now, the reasons were behind this, uh, they felt that it would help uh, with basically the traders' own mental health and other issues which have basically been a you know come from this pandemic so again yeah it's something that we've been keeping our eye on and uh, the development here is that Euronext confirms it has no intentions of changing its market hours now there was an industry-wide consultation on the proposal to reduce the trading day but Euronext has rejected the proposal and they claimed that they couldn't see uh, the benefits for cutting the trading hours and this also said that there wasn't any any evidence for these benefits uh, now, it came as a devastating blow for other market participants who were for shorter trading days. They said like the consultation for them was mostly UK-based buy and sell-side firms who were in favour of reducing market hours. So again, it's, uh, you know, you're an ex-being French-based. Uh, it's one of those ones to think about and uh, if there's a little bit more to this. Because, yeah, we had as well the London Stock Exchange, they did their own consultation back in June. And the consultation on the bid for shorter market hours concluded that there is overwhelming support for the move. But now we're seeing from Euronex that they're basically not in favour for this. They also said this in a statement, and they said it a few times, that the shorter market hours will not be a silver bullet for the issues to come from the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown. And almost just from my own opinion, it almost feels like now, because some are seeing that we look like we're easing restrictions life could be going back to normal but in other cases it seems like we could be going the other direction it almost seems like there is maybe some stalling on here but we you know we don't know where it's just your ex has basically said they're not in favor uk-based buy and sell side firms are strongly in favor for this so it's again we'll have to keep our eyes on this and see where it goes you know, Euronex had been quite open from the beginning that they weren't quite sure on whether this, um, you know, the bid to sort of short, shorten the market hours was was the right move. Um, I know that their their CEO had 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 sort of expressed concern in in the past that there was not so much evidence for the um, benefits that a lot of sort of UK based um, market participants were, um, you know, claiming that this would would um, would realise. But at the same time. Um, you know, it's it's a difficult one because um, I know that in the LSE consultation, it was very clear that if this was going to go ahead and the trading day was going to be reduced, then all of the exchanges across Europe would have to do this um, move for those benefits to be to be fully realised. You know, we don't want more fragmentation and more complexity in the market. Um, totally defeats the the purpose of this. So um so yeah, I think this is um a, a, a big blow to the to the kind of um to the bid, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't say that we've heard the last of this I, I expect that we'll hear more about this in the future definitely yeah 100% agree and uh, Annabelle what have you been uh, covering and been looking at over your time with us one of the stories that I wanted to cover was the integration of WhatsApp um, via Symphony at Deutsche Bank I think it's obviously really topical at the moment because you know traders and everyone in the market are trying to adapt to ways to deal with remote working conditions, you know, 24-7 contact with clients. It's comforting for them in times of severe market volatility. So yeah, WhatsApp was integrated by Deutsche Bank via Symphony. It followed their integration via Symphony of WeChat in 2019. And I think the focus with WhatsApp was making sure that there was, you know, data retention and surveillance and that it was um, a compliant method of communication for the traders at Deutsche Bank. 
Well, yeah, it's just interesting you say that because I actually did a webinar with Nice and Microsoft, and this was again kind of a similar point. We were talking about Microsoft Teams, and they were talking about yeah making it an available service so people again from working from home they can use it, they can communicate, they can record yeah. their trading, and it's just again building that environment for that almost that the working at home is going to be something which is going to be constant. I also covered a story today which I thought was interesting. Um, which was that Eurex Clearing had confirmed that its first two banks had um, cleared USD SOFR swaps. So for those of you who don't know what SOFR is, it's secured overnight financing rates. Um, It's an interesting story because it's sort of following on from the LIBOR scandal that's been going on over the last couple of years. Um, LIBOR, again, is the London interbank offered rate. And there was a bit of an issue with some of the major players in the space a couple of years ago because it was found out that some of them were reporting artificial interest rates to benefit their derivative traders. Um, So they've been looking for an appropriate alternative for LIBOR over the the last couple of years. And I think SOFR is providing that alternative to LIBOR. So the first two banks that cleared trades with them um, over the last couple of days have been JP Morgan and LBBW. Um, The SOFR overnight index swaps um, have been clearable since the 29th of July, but I think it's quite interesting to see, you know, some of the major players really pushing for an alternative to LIBOR now. Um, I think the ideal from regulators would be that the transition away from LIBOR um, would happen at the end of 2021. There was a bit of speculation that COVID might delay that, but I think this is this is showing that participants are really pushing for an alternative rating system. Yeah, that's that's right, Annabelle, and I think as well, you know, we, we've um, we were expecting some sort of delay. I know some people think that um, even now there there might be a slight delay. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm unsure. I don't, I don't know what we're what we're going to see from the Bank of England, um, but you know, I think that the buy side are are making plans and they're making progress. I know that we saw some stats from the Investment Association recently, which said that. 70% of asset managers had reduced their LIBOR exposure last year. So there's movement and, you know, things like that. And I don't think this will be the last that, that we hear of this. I think, you know, there might be some sort of um, further developments down the line in terms of, um, you know, the phasing out of, of LIBOR. But, um, yeah, definitely an interesting story. Now it's that time to uh, speak to our guest on the episode. Uh, we've got James Watson. Had a very good chat with him. So uh, let's go into that. The Trade Talkers. So joining us today on the Trade Talk segment is James Watson. He is the head of global sales and data at Tradition Data. Welcome to the show, James. How are you? Very well, thank you. Sunny day. What can go wrong? (laughs) I wish I could say the same. I know my colleagues, there enjoying the sun, but uh, I'm in grey Manchester at the moment, so rain all around. (laughs) Okay, so I just want to go with the first question. I want you to take us through some of the issues related to the increasing costs of market data for market participants. The question is a very open-ended question because the definition of what is a market participant and really you have to split in my world, we split it into two parts. The market participants are those who use listed data and they are receiving their data from a very sort of monopolistic approach in the sense that the big exchanges is only one place you can go and get the data. So, you know, if you're going to an exchange, then a lot of those exchanges are the only ones who have that data. So you are more prone to pricing um, differentiations there. In our world, we call it OTC, over the counter. There is a very, very 
um, large competitive landscape that we deal with. And therefore, that's led to different approaches to delivery of data, packaging of data. So in, in a sense, the, the increasing costs was an issue for a lot of people. But I think that technology, a modern approach to how you offer that data, probably driven by the youth of today. I mean, we're going to talk a bit, little bit about it later with the concept of the iTunes model. <clears throat> but, you know, the concept of only paying for what you receive and more importantly, only paying for what you want. So the issues related to increasing costs for those taking listed data is something that is outside of my spectrum. Um, but we did have issues around um, the efficiency of cost, as I like to do it. But given the fact there are so many participants, um, you know, you've got to be on your on your game and people have choice. You know, a, nobody owns a 10-year Euroswap. You know, that pricing for that is available across multiple platforms. And so, therefore, why would a client take it from you? It's got to be a combination of, the quality of your organization, the trust associated with it, the right price, of course, um, and maybe some other more subjective things that, you know, are out there that somebody knows somebody or there is a long-term relationship that exists. I just want to add, is, is timing an issue which uh, can relate to where we get the data from? Well, clients, yeah. So you have different uses of data. So in a sense, there are, there are four sorts of data. There is what we call real-time data. So those who trade, those who um, maybe need it to run algorithms, they need it to run what you call black box systems that will pr provide pricing indicators for people at the front end. So that's real-time. Um, then you have what you would call snap data. So people who might need to snap a price throughout the day to do a revaluation in real-time of a portfolio. The third one would be end of day. And a lot of these people are for risk departments, valuation departments, um, and the like, or corporates, buy side, who just need a file at the end of the day that gives them an end of day, effectively a golden source of data that they can then run their portfolios against and come up with an end of day price. And then last but not least is historical data. So that's where somebody like a quant or someone like that might come to us and say, I'd like 10 years of data for a specific asset class, FX options. And then we would provide them a tick by tick 10 year historical file, which they will then put into their own systems and run models to look for buying signals, look for indicators that would help them going forward, looking at patterns within the market. Should regulators step in with a solution to the rising cost of market data? And what could they do really? Again, two answers to this. I think on the listed side, not something that I really get into. Um, I think you can see what's happening with um, the news in the market that uh, they are, the regulators are looking at that um, and applying what I would call soft pressure at the moment by, you know, identifying where the data is coming from. But again, that's on the listed side. On the OTC side, on our side, um, I think that the market participants in data, all there's, there's enough of them 
And again, because we don't own the, you don't own a particular price in an asset class, you, there's plenty of choice for the client. But we did something different at Tradition. We decided, because when we read Mifid 2, one of the things that stuck out to us was the word disaggregation of data. Now, it might not have been pointed at us, but this sort of drove our thinking in that we said, well, rather than sort of chop prices, because the traditional way of buying over-the-counter data was in big packages. You know, if you, if you sort of try and relate this to Sky TV, for example, you would you have the all-you-can-eat Sky TV, um, and it, that's all you could get. Whereas we went the approach to say, well, okay, rather than have a, a race to the bottom on pricing in a competitive environment that doesn't suit anybody in the world, what we did was said, why don't we put the power of purchasing back in the hands of the client? And by disaggregating data down to its, uh, to its smaller bits, so for example, if I just want to buy Scandinavian data, why wouldn't I be able to buy Scandinavian data? At the old way of doing it is that that Scandinavian data would be put into a global package. So you would be buying the full Sky package, but you only want Sky Sports. Mm. But you have to buy the whole thing. So what we said was, why don't we block them into different things and say, if you just want Scandinavian data, you buy that. And the price for that, making up a price, is $500 a month, as opposed to a global package, which might be $5,000 a month. So therefore, what you're doing is saying to your client, do you know what you're buying? Do you have a choice of what you buy? Is this what you really want to buy? Because if it's what you really want to buy, then you're making the decision. And then what, you know, what happens there is that you have given price, price, or should you say spending power, back to the hands of the end users. And then they can build up the packages. And then to top it off, you say, if you buy three of these, then we give you the whole package for free for, for this price so that you can sort of the package now makes sense and you have created value for that. Now, I like this, what you said, putting, uh, giving the power to the purchasers. Um, have you seen a greater demand for this kind of data model you're supplying now? Yeah, more and more. I mean, we are a little bit constricted because in the sense that we deliver our data, we can deliver it directly to a client through a direct feed, or alternatively, we use providers like the Bloombergs and the Refinitives of the world. And depending on the relationship we have with each of those big vendors, what happens is that, you, that for example, with Refinitive, they do the pricing, they do the contractual basis. We have worked with somebody like Refinitive, and we have disaggregated down to much more bite-sized packages. Not as far as we could go directly, but it's made a big difference. And what that's meant is that you now have a strategy where you go back to all the clients and you say, here's our new pricing, here's our new pricing model, what do you want? What is your choice of data? Now, some of them may say, I like what I get, I'm happy with it all. But others who are looking for efficiencies in the market turn around and say things like, well, this is great, um, can you look at, here's all the data I use, and then we would match that to the new packages. And we discover, for example, that they're not using the upside down pineapple futures data that they're buying. So we would rip that out and say, well, you don't need to pay for that. And what happens is you start working with them on trust to build something that is specific and bespoke to what they want. And this comes back to the 
creation of value for what they're spending. So to answer your question, we've seen a really big change in attitude and a real acceptance of the fact that we're trying to put ourselves in a modern scenario and we are finding success because opening up that dialogue and building that trust is an extremely important part of what we do. Now, we just spoke about the demand. I want to know about the buy side. Has the way they consume data changed in recent years? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, The buy side has never been something that we as brokers have have really got into until, I'd say, the last 12 to 15 months. And what we've seen there is a real um, split of how they want to take data. So if I go back to my model of the type of data, so we find a lot of the buy side they, they only want end-of-day pricing. So they're really looking at the risk side of thing, portfolio management, management of their positions. So we've seen a, a, a bigger propensity of purchasing um, end-of-day files. Send me a file every day at 5 o'clock because I'm going to put that in with other data I get at 5 o'clock and I'm going to create a file which will allow me to um, revalue my portfolio. Okay? So we've seen a lot, a big growth in that area. What's happening now is also depending on the size of the buy side. So what is your definition of the buy side? Is it a corporate? Is it an asset manager? Is it a hedge fund? What type of hedge fund? Is it an insurance company? Is it, you know, is it, um, is it a pension company, depending on which country you're in? So what we're finding is that they're now opening up more and more conversations with us and listening to how we might want to deliver that data to them. The really big guys will say, Give me a feed, give me a plug, I will just um, absorb more and more data from you. Just keep giving me data, we'll manage it internally. Others are much more specific and say, here's the problem I have, can you help me solve this problem? And while you're doing that, again, this comes back to my trust build, as you're building trust with them and they see the model and they understand what you're doing, you then get into discussions about, oh, I've... Got another thing over here. It's not a problem yet, but it might be a problem. And so we can start to um, investigate ways to make them more efficient. So they're definitely coming to the table, whereas in the past they were big, say, Bloomberg or Refinitiv um, receivers or consumers. Now they're looking for alternative, you know, direct feeds or end-of-day feeds. So there's been an uptick, um, definitely. Now, I just want to end the interview with this question. Should market data vendors look more closely at other models such as Spotify or Apple Music as a means of providing accessible and affordable data? Well, you have now just hit my sweet spot. So when I was, before I joined Tradition, one of the things that I was quite aware of was I have teenage kids uh, and I was looking at how they consume data. And the more people I interviewed, in the past, and the more youth I interviewed, they were all coming and they, their use of data and their absorption, their consumption of data was very binary, black and white. Did it, and the thing that stuck, stuck out to me really clearly was, does it have a value? And what you find with the youth of today, um, that if it doesn't have a value, so for example, if I've got an iPhone, or um, you can buy other brands as well, um, but if I had an iPhone and it had an app on it, and that app was of no business to me, even though I bought it for £1.99 or whatever, I just hit the delete button, it's gone forever. Because I, even though I spent £1.99 on it, it proved itself to have no value, so I got rid of it. 
So Scott Fitzpatrick and I sat down and we looked at um, we looked at our industry and said, "Wow, is there a more modern way of thinking?" And that's where iTunes came into it. iTunes, in the sense that if I don't want to buy the album, I don't need to. So I'm not a massive, you know, I'm not a Britney Spears fan. But like anybody, if you've had a couple of drinks and on comes hit me one more time, that's a good dance song. So therefore, why don't I buy that song for my party playlist? I don't want the album because I'm not a fan of hers, but that song. So we thought, why don't we apply that thinking to pricing and to packaging? And we found that to be a major success because, again, this comes back to an earlier question. Somebody in Scandinavia who only wants Scandinavian data they should have the ability to only buy Scandinavian data. If they want to add to it, they can either add from another album or add from the same album. So if you take that into market data, I may want to have um, interest rate derivatives package for Scandinavian data, and that's all I need at the moment. But going forward, we decided to open up a China desk, so I now need to go to another album and get the greater China data. Oh, while, I'm, while, while we're doing that, um, one of the teams said they'd like Scandinavian foreign exchange data. So I go to the same album, the Scandinavian album, and pull that down. So effectively, I'm building a playlist. So in data parlance, I'm building a package, a bespoke package, which you would say is like a playlist on, on iTunes that is my choice. And if it's, if it's data that I'm choosing, that I am choosing for my organization, then the, I'm in control of the pricing. So I come back to that whole method of building trust and putting the power of the purchasing. And one of the big questions my salespeople ask now is not just what are you using, what do you really need? What is it you need? Because if you understand what you need and we can package down to what you need, then it follows you're only buying what you need, we're only delivering to you what you need, and then the, the, the big crux on the end is you're only paying for what you need. So it's really about valuing and providing value that the end user organization requires. So that's the whole iTunes model. And I think more people need to adopt it. I sit in conferences on a regular basis and I often hear the argument from, say, the exchanges who say, well, you know, we can't drop our prices if we um, if we did. You know, we would we would uh, we went to a more user model, and we would have a problem. I mean, some of my competitors, oh, if we went to a user model, we'd lose money because you know people might downgrade to what they want. We decided very early on that that was a risk we were willing to take. You know, somebody who was buying a ten thousand dollar a month package under the new pricing when their contract came up for renewal might renew, and they they might now be on seven thousand dollars a month. That's a risk you have to take. However, here's the interesting thing what we found was that they didn't have a problem paying $10,000. They just had a problem paying $10,000 for what they were receiving. So if you work with them and you, and I mean, I'm just, that's an arbitrary notional number. But if you're, you know, if you're suddenly saying to your person, you can change things around, they may end up paying 12. They may end up paying eight. But the beauty of that is, they are the ones defining what they want. And that makes a massive difference in the industry. And then just to finish on Spotify, I expect Spotify is, is more of the streaming service. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that 
you know, direct feeds coming in from organizations like mine, you know, rather than having a third party, people saying, can you stream it to me? You know, some of the big discussions we have are what we call, quote unquote, all you can eat packages where the client will say, can you just stream to me and I will pay you a monthly fee for access to everything. So you, you don't care what I you don't care how many people use it because if I'm buying the family package, everybody in the family can use it. You don't care where I use it because like Spotify, if I'm in London or if I'm in New York, uh, I'm paying that price. So th there's a whole nother wave of stuff that's coming down there with the cloud. Well, I'm very happy that you actually use this music analogy because just like uh, the good old music store, for those who are not listening in the UK, HMV, uh, when streaming came out, it seems like no one went and bought CDs and it does seem like this kind of new technology and basically making it more efficient is going to be the way. So it's interesting to see how this goes in the future. But James, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, mate. And um, feel free to give me a call anytime and I'm happy to help out. Who is where? People moves. So that was our nice interview with James and very interesting to see if their data will be presented in a similar model to Spotify and Apple Music, uh, a different way of consuming data, which is one I know all our viewers and listeners are concerned about. So uh, now it's time to move on to our last segment of the show, which is People Moves. And uh, Annabelle, would you like to start us off with that one? Sure. Um, so I covered quite an interesting People Move last month, which was that of the chair of ESMA. Um, the regulatory body in Europe. So Stephen Majore was their chair um, for 10 years, which is the maximum that you can serve. So he's obviously been doing a fantastic job. Yeah, so he had his term extended in 2011, I think it was, to come to the maximum of 10 years. Um, so he's obviously been doing a, a great job and he's now being tasked with finding someone to succeed him as the chair. Um, it's a role based in Paris and they're responsible for the long term strategic orientation um, of ESMA. Prior to his role at ESMA, my jaw was a managing director at the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. He's obviously had a big, strong um, regulatory history in the space. Um, so exciting to see who will follow him. And yeah. Yeah, Annabelle, I think it's going to be really interesting to see who um, who the next chair of ESMA will be. Uh, and and let's not forget, you know, they're, they're going to have their work cut out. We've got the uh, the MIFID II review, um, which is ongoing. We've got the Capital Markets Union. We've got all of these regulatory initiatives that are that are ongoing. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And um, I'll be also interested to see where um, where the former chair sort of you know um, ends up. I wonder what sort of um, role he he perhaps could walk into in the future. It's funny you should mention that because uh, another podcast which I do with our sister channel, which is Global Custodian, uh, we did There's Always a Finreg Angle podcast and we were speaking about this and uh, we were actually seeing if our two speakers were interested in submitting a CV. So uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have, you know, the exclusive interview with the new head. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. So, yeah, I want to talk about a people move, which is crypto related. Now, it's still relevant to what we're talking about. But yeah, the former global head of electronic trading at Goldman Sachs, uh, Greg Tussar, he is joining as the VP of institutional products at crypto platform Coinbase. Now, he was also the co-founder of uh, Tagomi. And this move came as Coinbase acquired Tagomi. So again, it's a kind of people move, which is acquired with a buy. But uh, interesting to see that... Uh, Coinbase is acquiring this and that they're taking someone who is quite a, 
a veteran in the industry. Uh, yeah, Kais, I think this is an interesting people move. Um, I think, you know, for the for the crypto space and the, and the crypto industry, it's it, it seems to me that, you know, we're, we're starting to see some movement in terms of the, um, you know, institutional investors and their, their in, interest and engagement with digital assets. And I think, you know, when Coinbase, a predominantly retail platform, um, hires someone, um, you know, a big name like they have, um, Gold, you know, um, I believe that Greg was the head of uh, electronic trading at Goldman for about, maybe more than 10 years from from about 2011 or something like that so he was there for a long time he's a big name and to have someone of that caliber sort of join the the business um you know and obviously he's joined as part of the the acquisition of of his his prime brokerage company but um you know it's sort of just um is interesting because coinbase will be hoping to use his expertise to to build out that institutional um offering which i know coinbase have have tried to to build out a lot in the past. So yeah, you know, all these sort of people moves, it it, it just sort of it it almost makes me think that perhaps institutional investors are engaging more and more with digital assets now um than they were, you know, maybe a year or, or two ago. Um but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Definitely, definitely. Well, that's almost all the time we have. Now, just before we go, there's just uh, a few little plugs I want to do. We've been doing a very exciting podcast over at Global Custodian called GC Stories. Now we speak to some real uh, people in the industry with some real tales to tell. So uh, sometimes we have people who have been in the military, people who've been in conservation. I'm going to do that again. (laughs) Uh, Do you mind, Hayley, by the way, if I plug GC Stories or... No, go for it. Keep that. That's fine. Oh, by the way, has anyone else got anything to plug? Have we got any surveys? We need to. I was to... just thinking that, but our so our EMS survey is still live. It's um, uh, I'll say about it. Let me know when you want me to say about it. So it seems like we're coming to an end. Just before we end, though, I just want to do some plugs. I've been over at Global Custodian working on a podcast called GC Stories. Now it's a very interesting one. Uh, we have some people in this industry, big names, who are actually got a bit of a different tale. So we had also the former England rugby player, Pat Sanderson. He was one of our guests and we've had military people. We've had people who were doing marathons in the desert. It's really interesting stories. So uh, definitely I would recommend going checking that out. It's a nice one to listen to on your morning run or just uh, in your downtime. What about you, Hayley? Have we got any uh, plugs to go? in here before the end yeah we do just a quick one from me so for all the buy side traders listening um please do uh vote in the ems survey the trades ems survey 2020 um so we've actually extended the deadline um slightly so that survey is now open until the 14th of august so you've got a few more days to go uh but yeah do do take the time to vote the um the outperformers in that will be recognized as always at the leaders in trading ceremony later this year whatever kind of format that may take um, we are we are looking at options for that and um, we will update you all as soon as we can yeah you can find that survey on our website so just search the tradenews.com and you'll find it there uh well annabelle Haley, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast it's been a pleasure yeah thanks for having me thanks guys and thank you guys at home for listening we'll be back soon goodbye for now trade talks bringing you the best of the buy side